This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, online editor and podcast host. There is simply too much to talk about today. We are going planetary. We are going to look at BHP's big announcement. That is our feature content. I want you guys to be on the cutting edge of mining corporate understanding. And so we are going to take a look at that. And further to that, we are going to look at what happened with Rio Tinto. The CEO has resigned. Two top executives. It wasn't clear if they'd resigned or if they'd been let go. We're going to take a closer look at that. Actually, I should say Jean-Sébastien Jacques, the CEO, has announced his resignation. He may be on till next March, but basically he's on the way out until they conduct an orderly uh, transfer, I guess, of power. Not to be overly dramatic here. Also, they have found what looks like signs of life on Venus. I don't know if you guys saw that. I kind of thought that would make bigger news. Maybe it's just too premature. Like, I mean, if you look at the skeptics, it's a little premature maybe, but it looks quite interesting. So even if there's a 10% chance on that one, I would think that would just dominate the headlines for a day. It dominated Twitter, but you could have easily have missed it if you weren't paying too close attention. We are going to take a closer look at that. There's a New York Times article. We're just going to graze it, so to speak, as we take a nice walk along the pastures of the media landscape today. So it's a bit of a planetary episode. I mean, BHP is the world's biggest mining company. It was on the mining.com top 50 to make sure. And Rio Tinto is the second biggest company. Venus, well, that's that's getting planetary. Now, I don't know if this next one is planetary, but I do have to highlight it. We're going to look at BMO's $1,400 gold price forecast. Their long-term price forecast hasn't changed. Nothing's changed out there. So BMO is keeping steady on their predictions. I kind of am starting to love this stuff, but who knows? They may have the last laugh on that. But these predictions, I mean, obviously nobody knows the answers to these questions, and I presume no more than they do. So we're going to take a look at that. We have some very interesting mining news as well. So lots to look forward to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner. Some of the prettiest photos in mining we put up there. And you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And you can also find us on YouTube where we host these podcasts and as well on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to Gord Sosinski from Petro-Canada Lubricants for our fifth Mining Minute. And Gord is going to help us figure out how to use the best oil for our mining machines to keep them in top shape. And Gord is a world expert on this thing, so let's turn it to him. Joining us now is Gord Sosinski, Senior Technical Services Advisor for Petro-Canada Lubricants. And Gord, how can engine lubricants help improve equipment fuel efficiency? The two biggest contributors that come to mind are lower viscosity lubricants, which contribute to fuel economy by being less viscous. So you have less viscous drag, which means it requires less energy to lubricate the moving components. Synthetics and synthetic blends also contribute to fuel savings with lower coefficients of friction. So there's less thickening of the oil as well from oxidation and there's greater shear stability. But it needs to be considered that the engine lubricant is only one component of an engine's fuel economy story. The drivetrain lubricants are also a factor and synthetics are becoming more popular in those components such as the transmission and differentials and in combination with the engine lubricant can result in greater fuel savings. But keep in mind, there's also so many other variables to consider that contribute to the fuel economy story, such as things like aerodynamics, the driver, old engines versus mm-hmm. new engines, idling profile, tire condition, air pressure, things like that. So lubricants do help with fuel economy, but are only one component to be considered in that fuel efficiency effort. Okay, very interesting. And how much of a component is 
the lubricant that you use in fuel efficiency, how big of a difference can it make? The oil on its own in the studies that I've been privy to and, and worked with, um, we've seen numbers up to as high as like three and a half percent, which to the average driver on the street, three and a half percent fuel efficiency may not be a lot. But if you're a mining company that's purchasing 50, 75 or 100 million liters of fuel, you add 3% to that, that savings significantly improves your bottom line. Got you. Yeah, that sounds very important. And it sounds like it could add up to a lot of money. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Gord. And we will see you on next week's Mining Minute. That was Petro Canada Lubricants Gord Sosinski. And if you would like to learn more about their services, again, you can go to the show notes and there will be a link to Petro Canada Lubricants. Thank you once again to them for sponsoring this show. And turning to the news, we are going to go beyond the website for a couple of stories here because they are big and... I just want to touch on this Venus one because it's sort of half mining, half not. But I think we should consider this stuff as in our province, in our realm of understanding, in our bailiwick, as they would say. So let's take a look at this New York Times article, Life on Venus, question mark. Astronomers see a signal in its clouds high in the toxic atmosphere of the planet Venus. Astronomers on Earth have discovered signs of what might be life. If the discovery is confirmed... By additional telescope observations and future space missions, it could turn the gaze of scientists towards one of the brightest objects in the night sky. Venus, named after the Roman goddess of beauty, roasts at temperatures of hundreds of degrees and is cloaked by clouds that contain droplets of corrosive sulfuric acid. Few have focused on the rocky planet as a habitat for something living. Instead, for decades, scientists have sought signs of life elsewhere, usually peering outwards to Mars and more recently at Europa and Enceladus and other icy moons of the giant planets. The astronomers who reported the findings on Monday in a pair of papers have not collected specimens of Venusian microbes, nor have they snapped any pictures of them. But with powerful telescopes, they have detected a chemical, phosphine, in the thick Venus atmosphere, after much analysis, the scientists assert that something now alive is the only explanation for the chemical source. And I'm just going to read a couple more paragraphs and we can move on. Some researchers question this hypothesis and they suggest instead that the gas could result from unexplained atmospheric or geologic processes on a planet that remains mysterious. But the findings will also encourage some planetary scientists to ask whether humanity has overlooked a planet that may have once been more Earth-like than any other world in our solar system. Quote, this is an astonishing and out-of-the-blue finding, said Sarah Seeger, a planetary scientist at MIT and an author of the papers. Quote, it will definitely fuel more research into the possibilities for life in Venus's atmosphere. So very interesting. I thought we should touch on this. I think it relates to our business. And just on that point, always back to the great courses, I remember watching an astronomy lecture series, something like 90 episodes or something crazy like that, 30 minutes each. I think I, I'm not sure if I watched the whole thing. I think I did. That was about five years ago. But what's really one of the more memorable episodes uh, was this idea that Venus had a runaway greenhouse effect and that basically that was the tenor of the lecture was that basically Venus was doing better but once that then it started but then it started to overheat and got sucked into a runaway greenhouse effect so interesting it is our closest neighbor from what I understand at least in terms of the planets so I just want to touch on that. And now let's get to more mining-focused news. So we had the resignation of Jean-Sébastien Jacques, the CEO. And what I want to do is first I'm going to read an article basically just on the resignations. And then let's just dig a little deeper because there is an interesting timeline going on here. If we turn to northernminer.com, and we have Mining.com, Cecilia Jamasmi has written the story, Rio Tinto CEO Jean-Sébastien Jacques will step down at the end of March next year 
over a mounting backlash against the company's decision to destroy ancient Aboriginal heritage sites in Western Australia. The world's second largest miner said two other senior executives, Iron Ore boss Chris Salisbury and corporate affairs head Simone Niven, who had responsibility for Indigenous affairs, will also leave the company. The high-profile departures come four years after Rio Tinto swept out its veteran managers. Remember Sam Walsh, former CEO who refused to testify in, I think, voluntary Australian parliamentary inquiry into the blast. This comes four years after Rio Tinto swept out its veteran managers to make way for a new generation of business leaders. The changes are a direct result of shareholder and public outcry over the May destruction of a 46,000-year-old archaeological site, despite opposition of Aboriginal traditional owners. Jacques will leave once a successor is chosen, or at the end of next March, whichever date comes first. Salisbury's termination is effective immediately, Rio Tinto said. So Chris Salisbury was basically fired. He was terminated. Ivan Vela, Managing Director for Rail, Port, and Core Services within Rio Tinto Iron Ore, will replace Salisbury on an interim basis. Niven, in turn, will step down on December 31st after, quote, completing an orderly transition of her responsibility, the board said. So it looks like this is being hung around Chris Salisbury's neck uh, for the most part, but all three are being basically forced to leave. Jacques' appearance before a parliamentary inquiry in August failed to quell questions about the company's intent relating to the destruction of the sites. He said the company was not aware of the importance of the caves prior to them being blown up, which sounds a little unlikely. And we're going to look, there's a bombshell Guardian article that came out before this. So I'm just giving us the news, but then we're going to go back a couple of weeks and then we're going to piece together why now. He also noted that removing the landmarks would likely deliver about $135 million in extra value to Rio's iron ore division, a unit that's generated underlying earnings of $9.6 billion in 2019. So everything we've, listeners of this program are familiar with this. Uh, we have a response from the Human Rights Law Center. Uh, Karen Adams, legal director, said, quote, at last we are seeing some proper accountability at the top for Rio Tinto's destruction of Juke and Gorge. The company's initial response of docking executives' bonuses was patently inadequate given the significance of the site. She added, Over the past few years, Rio Tinto has been the subject of serious human rights complaints by communities impacted by its operations in a number of countries. In Bougainville, for instance, communities are also facing destruction of their sacred sites, as well as a serious pollution of their land and water. The situation has demonstrated beyond doubt the importance of companies, boards, and executives protecting their social license, said Bryn O'Brien, activist and executive director of the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. So, yeah, and it sounds like BHP and Fortescue Metals are also, after all of the fallout, the part of the fallout of all this is they are now reevaluating their plans, which may have threatened certain so-called sacred or archaeological sites in Australia. And yeah, so you can read the full article on northernminer.com. Now, I wanted to get back to this other article. This was sent to me by John Cumming, previous editor-in-chief, a listener of the program. And he has actually helped piece together a bit of a timeline as to why now. And this was a bit of a bombshell, I thought, and a lot of the articles on the resignation didn't quite cover this part of the timeline, and so I wanted to just get into it because I looked at a few, and I was like, where's this mention of what had happened a couple of weeks before? Because it sounded like, from what I could tell, that the board had what I would call a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment where they realized if we don't force these guys to resign, we're going to go down with the ship. That's my theory. So let's just look at this. Rio Tinto condemned, this is September 7th, last week. Rio Tinto condemned by shareholders for seeking legal advice before blowing up Juke and Gorge. So shareholder groups have heavily criticized Rio Tinto after revelations late last week that it hired lawyers to prepare for a potential injunction against the destruction of ancient rock shelters in Juke and Gorge 
three days before they were destroyed in a mining blast. So they had hired lawyers in preparation for a fallout from the blast. Late on Friday, Rio released dozens of documents. And doesn't that just remind you, it's like the classic, you know what the association I have is the Clinton White House classic move document dump on Friday afternoon after everybody's gone home. And then also by Monday, it's old news of whoever's paying attention. Dump it on Friday. So Rio, with probably some of the most, I mean, it's the second biggest mining company. They probably have some pretty sophisticated PR people. Uh, Late on Friday, Rio released dozens of documents, including minutes of meetings in response to questions raised by a parliamentary inquiry. So, They released a whole bunch of documents on a Friday. At a meeting of senior managers on 21st of May, the iron ore boss Chris Salisbury asked about the risk of an injunction and Rio's legal counsel, Nick Toll, quote, advised preparations were underway and external law firm Ashurst, a multinational corporate firm, is instructed. The minutes show Rio Tinto executives were more concerned about potential damage to Aboriginal heritage sites which they did not have permission to damage, than the impact of the rock shelters at Juke and Gorge. So remember, it was legal what they did at Juke and Gorge. One could argue is morally reprehensible and just on an intellectual level is kind of bankrupt. But it was legal. But they were getting lawyers. They weren't even worried about Juke and Gorge because they were saying it was legal. They're worried about the other stuff that wasn't legal and that they might damage stuff that wasn't legal, and we better have some lawyers ready, just in case. And Toll, Rio Tinto's legal counsel, confirmed that Rio Tinto is legally covered in respect of the Jukin Rock shelters under the existing S-18 consent. The minutes say, the, uh, and so the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility said Rio Tinto's behaviour, quote, beggars belief. After blasting Juke and Gorge in May, Rio Tinto assured investors and journalists that the company would be seen in a better light once all the facts emerged. Its legal counsel, James Fitzgerald, said, Precisely the opposite is proving to be true. A yawning gap is growing between Rio Tinto's portrayal of events on one hand and the picture emerging from the evidence on the other. And I like to think we were on the forefront of sniffing this out. We have been talking about Rio Tinto since May, and we have smelled a rat the whole time, and now it's come out. Continuing, quote, The upshot of Rio Tinto's submissions and report is that destruction of Juke and Gorge was all a tragic mistake for which everyone and no one is responsible. Yet the minutes of internal Rio Tinto meetings on the 21st and 22nd of May, several days before the Juke and Blast, reveal a different story. The minutes show deliberate efforts to lawyer up and defend the destruction that hadn't yet occurred. There is no record of surprise, shock, regret, or remorse by Rio executives. This is the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility is explaining all this. Okay, Continuing in the article, the meeting on the 21st of May was called after the PKKP traditional owners asked Rio Tinto to delay the blasting and named the rock shelter as a significant heritage site. So we have a further quote from the UK-based local authority pension fund. Remember, and this all, like, all of this connects to our, say our discussion last week with Dr. Chris Hind and the whole ESG investing thesis. So here you have a pension fund, and they say the chair of the local authority pension fund based out of the UK says, quote, There seems to be increasing evidence that the senior executives in question could well have known what was going on. And even if they didn't, LAPFF's view is that they should have known. In either case, we have grave concerns about Rio Tinto's corporate governance, and we expect the board to take appropriate and proportionate measures in response. Now get this. In the documents provided to the Senate, Rio Tinto also admitted that many of the 7,000 items salvaged from the Juke and Gorge site were being stored in a non-air-conditioned on-site shipping container. I mean, this is straight out of corporate vandalism from the 1980s. All you need to do after this is just pour, you know, toxic waste directly into the river and the cliché is complete. 
Last week, an anthropologist, Professor Glenn Cochran, who spent 20 years implementing Rio Tinto's social performance program, said he was, quote, not sure the artifacts are being held somewhere safe. It's like blowing up the tomb of the unknown soldier and forgetting about the occupant. Rio Tinto said the storage facility was a sea container and was not climate controlled. So you can read that whole mess on The Guardian. So I don't know what a mining company is doing storing archaeological objects, do you? <laughs> I don't know. Hey, okay, well, just if you see anything important, just put it in the storage container and we'll, we'll keep it in storage there. And then if anything happens, we can give the storage container to the PKKP. Like, was that the, like, was that like, so the extent of the disregard for these things now, you got to wonder, like, in a sense, like, they just might not have understood why these things are important. So either they don't understand and you go, wow, someone can get to the top of one of the biggest corporations in the world without understanding something like that. And that's kind of a little amazing. Or they did understand and they decided to do it anyway. Now, this feeds into a theory of mine that I have these days, which is some people are paid too much money. And because sometimes you don't understand. I mean, you see it on cable news, right? You see it on the right and the left. But I mean, for instance, I did see, say, someone like Sean Hannity makes 2 to $3 million a month, okay? Now, if you're making three, that probably doesn't even include bonuses. If you're making $3 million a month, that's $100,000 a day, probably US for our Canadian listeners, it's even more. So you're making $100,000 a day. We don't understand, like unless you're making that kind of money, maybe we have a few on this podcast that do, but not many. And if you're making that kind of money, we don't understand what that's like. Because everybody thinks is they're going to be morally holier than thou until you're banking $100,000 a day, and then you're going to see what you're made of. Okay, so I don't think it's an excuse, but I think we shouldn't be scapegoating these people either as being totally repugnant, evil people. That's way too simple. These people are being paid an enormous amounts of money. So how does that affect you? And I think people are being paid too much money. If you're getting paid $100,000 a day, what are you willing to do to keep that going? You know what I'm saying? Like this is, so it's not, I guess my moral of the story on this, as we kind of move on, hopefully Rio Tinto starts a, a fresh page, is that could be anybody. Nobody thinks they're an evil person. Everybody has their justifications. And this is the thing. Everybody has their justifications. And we can rationalize these justifications. And we use reason. And when we have reasons, we say, okay, it's okay. And if there's anything that the 20th century has taught us, is that reason is not enough. Reason is not enough. So that is part of the larger moral of this story. You can use reason to defend anything. Okay? Reason is very important, but don't start using reason as your holy grail of defending anything and everything because it leads to a very dark path. So thank you, Rio Tinto, for turning the page. And again, I think the board... After these revelations came out in the document dump, they met, as far as I understand, John helped me put the timeline together in an email, they met afterwards, and I think they had a come-to-Jesus moment where they said, either we get rid of these guys and force them to resign and make a big move, or we're going down with the ship. So, because as you heard me and Chris Hind, the board was next. The board's not willing to do anything. Maybe we need to get rid of the board was where the conversation was going. So the board took action. Now, let's see. I mean, The Guardian has another article saying removing the three people was not enough. So, I mean, I say give them breathing space now. I think they've gotten the message. Let's see. But, I mean, it is a troubled company. And let's see if they can turn things around. 
Turning to our next story. Now, we are going long here. Unfortunately, we have had to edge out a couple of very interesting stories. Sometimes the headlines are enough. Gemfields, which is a gem-orientated company. Are they a miner? They are a miner. Gem miner, Gemfields. They are targeting a growing Chinese market for, quote, responsibly mined gemstones. So I thought that was a very interesting development. Let's give credit where credit is due. Their consumer wants, it says here from a quote from Chief Executive Sean Gilbertson, quote, we expect responsible sourcing will continue to receive ever-increasing attention and become progressively more important to Chinese jewelry buyers. And it says here that 97% of jewelry owners are willing to pay a premium for responsibly mined gemstones. So that is very interesting. So a nice development out of China. Another story which we're just going to touch on here is diamond sales have bounced. But according to analysts, the market is still in intensive care. And yeah, it was BMO analyst Edward Sterk was saying... Whilst the market has been defibrillated, we think it will remain in intensive care for some time, although any improvement is good news for the smaller pure play producers with weak balance sheets. So yeah, I mean, a significant bounce in diamond sales. So it is not dead anymore, as Edward Sterk says. That is also available on the Northern Miner website. And we are just going to take a quick look at this BMO price forecast. This is by Northern Miner staff. BMO Capital Markets forecast gold prices will rise between 8 and 16% during the 2021 to 2024 period and average $1,800 per ounce through 2023, it announced in a research note today. Average silver prices will increase to $27.60 per ounce in 2021, up 49% from its previous estimate. The bank hasn't changed its long-run price expectations, however, and maintains its price targets of $1,400 per ounce gold and $18.25 per ounce silver. And so we have a quote from the report. As we factor in the new Federal Reserve policy of average inflation targeting, as announced at the recent Virtual Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium, the net result is likely to be low for even longer interest rates. With this, we see the precious positive cycle of macroeconomic policy being prolonged and have thus increased our short to medium term gold and silver price forecasts. And then, like, so they justify it from a commodities perspective, they continue. It should be acknowledged that $2,000 per ounce is a very, very strong gold price. August was the highest nominal monthly average on record and back at the 1980 and 2012 peaks on an inflation-adjusted basis. So to their credit, they are backing it up with numbers. Now, I mean, so many people have, like, what inflation number are they using? I mean, it's hard to say, but nevertheless, uh, it would be nice if they said which, where they're getting their inflation-adjusted number from. But continuing on, in our view, however, unless we see further currency debasement, still a possibility rather than a probability or real yields drop even further, the story from current levels is not about whether the gold price rises a further 20%. Rather, it is about the duration of gold prices in excess of our long-run equilibrium. Thus, the key factors to watch over the coming years is what the gold mining and refining industry will do with the strong free cash flow set to be generated, an area where there are still bridges being rebuilt following previous missteps in past cycles. Long story short, what are the miners going to do with all that extra money? So interesting work from BMO. I'd say a bold call, keeping with $1,400 per ounce gold. That is definitely a contrarian position. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. And if you'd like to find them for yourself, 
Simply go to mining.com slash markets and you will see the page I'm looking at. And on September 15th, gold is trading at $1,967.44 per ounce. And that is $35 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $27.45. That is $0.47 cents higher than last week's quote. Platinum is also higher at $966.83. That is $51 higher than last week's quote. And palladium continues to go higher at $2,340.74. That is $21 higher than last week. And copper is trading at $3.07 per pound. That is $0.04 higher than last week's quote. Aluminum is down a penny at 79 cents, and lead is down 3 cents at 85 cents per pound. Nickel is also down 13 cents at $6.77 per pound. Tin is trading at $8.11 per pound. That is 22 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $14.97 per pound. And zinc is also lower at $1.10 per pound. That is two cents lower than last week. The moral of the story is copper shows strength. Otherwise, industrial metals are consolidating to a little bit lower. And also, palladium shows a bit of strength. Gold, silver, and platinum are up, but nothing special. Uh, so I would say a time of consolidation and copper looking strong. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, we have BHP's climate change presentation. If you want to be on the cutting edge of knowing what mining and sustainability are up to and their relationship, uh, just simply go to the biggest mining company in the world who just put a presentation a mere five days ago. And we have the whole thing here. At times it can be a little corporate, but I would say bear with it because what you walk away with here is a cutting-edge understanding of what is actually happening with mining and the environment from the biggest mining company in the world. So we start out with Mike Henry, Chief Executive Officer of BHP. Then the mic gets passed to Chief Development Officer, Johan van Jarsveld. And then finally, Fiona Wild, VP of Sustainability and Climate Change, also speaks, and they turn it back to Mike Henry at the end. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you on the other side. Thank you for joining our climate change briefing today. With me are Johan van Jarsveld and Fiona Wild. Johan is BHP's Chief Development Officer, accountable for strategy and portfolio. He'll be speaking to the relationship between strategy and climate at BHP. Johan holds a PhD in extractive metallurgical engineering and had extensive experience in the industry and innovation before joining BHP four years ago. Many of you will know Fiona already. Fiona is an expert in climate change. She holds a PhD in chemistry and has been with BHP now for 10 years. Her leadership has helped to advance climate change action in our industry and beyond including via her membership of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Fiona will speak later to the climate actions we are committed to progressing. I've been close to this topic and the enormous challenges it poses for a number of years. Indeed, back in 2013, Fiona and I worked closely together on designing BHP's present climate change position and strategy. Of course, BHP's focus on climate change didn't start just seven years ago. We've been active in addressing climate risks for more than two decades. In 1997, we were among the first large companies to publish a report detailing our operational greenhouse gas emissions. We first implemented an internal carbon pricing protocol and began trading carbon credits in the European market in 2004. And in 2016, we launched the world's first forced bond with the International Finance Corporation. We have long seen climate as integral to our approach to environmental, social and governance issues. In turn, ESG is deeply embedded into our broader operating model. I am pleased to have the opportunity today to share with you the progress we've made on climate action, the new commitments we're making, and how we integrate climate change into our corporate strategy and portfolio decisions. 
Our approach to managing climate risk is founded on three key elements, accountability, expectations, and value. Firstly, we see ourselves as being accountable to take action. We emit greenhouse gases through our own operations, as do our customers when they use our products. We know we have a role to play in addressing climate risk. We acknowledge this and we embrace our responsibility to act. Secondly, BHP's stakeholders have increasing expectations of us. This includes our investors, our people, and the communities and nations who host our operations or buy our products. We must be responsive to these expectations, and in doing so, we can create competitive advantage for BHP. Thirdly, and very importantly, climate change action makes good economic sense. It creates value. Later today, we will talk about our approach to detailed scenario analysis and the implications for our business. Of the scenarios we've assessed, those that envision stronger global climate action also deliver greater value for BHP. And that's because we are major providers of the commodities that will enable a green transition. So again, accountability, expectations, and value. We are driven by all three. Our approach to climate change is defined by a number of key requirements. Firstly, we are a company of substance and our actions must also be of substance. Real, tangible actions to drive emissions down. Secondly, we must focus on what we can control inside our business and work with others to help them reduce emissions from the things that they control. This includes sharing our insights and expertise to amplify impact. And finally, portfolio. We are a long-term company that creates value and returns over generations. We do this by striving to be exceptionally good operators, by maintaining financial discipline, and by ensuring exposure to commodities that benefit from the megatrends playing out in the world around us. We exercise judgment about how to stage the shaping of our portfolio over time. We assess individual commodities for attractiveness over multiple time horizons. And we grow value in the near term, including by continuing to invest in commodities that have strong fundamentals in the short to medium term, like oil, all while building up a richer set of options in commodities that will remain attractive into the longer term like copper, nickel, and potash. This is why we have been clear that we intend to create and secure more options in future-facing commodities. We already have very significant exposure to these, but we want to ensure stakeholders benefit further from the growth in demand we expect as decarbonization and electrification play out. For more than 130 years, BHP has been producing the resources that have supported economic growth and made countless lives better around the world. Everything we produce, including iron ore, coal, petroleum, copper, and nickel, help to deliver these outcomes. But the production of the resources is not an end in itself. It's what these resources enable that makes the real difference. Driving growth and development, underpinning materials for sanitation and healthcare, sustainable food production, developing industry, building vital infrastructure, and allowing broad-based wealth creation. As our purpose says, we exist to bring people and resources together to build a better world. Our approach to climate change is entirely consistent with this purpose because a world that decarbonizes while sharing the benefits of economic growth is a better world. Our portfolio is already well positioned to support the transition to a lower carbon world aligned with the Paris Agreement while creating value for our shareholders and our broader stakeholders. As Johan will explain further shortly, our scenario analysis indicates that BHP will do best in a transition to a world where warming is limited to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. In a 1.5 degree scenario, the world is expected to need almost twice as much steel in the next 30 years as it did in the last 30. And so the world will rely on the iron ore and coke and coal we produce. If we want to keep pace with the development of renewable technologies, such as electric vehicles and solar energy, then copper production will have to double over the next 30 years. And nickel production will have to increase nearly fourfold to power the next generation of battery technology. And while the shift to cleaner energy sources is clear, the world will still need oil and gas to power mobility and everyday modern life on the pathway to decarbonization. Finally, potash will be vital for more efficient agricultural practices and to ease pressure on scarce arable land. Under any scenario, our industry will be critical to ensuring the rise of global living standards. So our conclusion is, is clear. 
Whichever way the world evolves, we will create substantial value well into the future, even more so in a lower carbon world. We are, however, realistic about the magnitude of the tasks that the world faces in meeting the Paris goals. Unfortunately, today the world is not currently on track. Neither the current aggregate commitments of nations nor progress against those commitments is sufficient. The world will need to increase action if it is to achieve the ambitions of Paris. This makes it all the more important that the focus is at all times on actions that result in actual reduction in emissions and not simply the optics of reduction. Sustained action, not symbolism. We must also acknowledge that we cannot leave large segments of the world's people behind on the road to decarbonization. Not only would that not be just, but it would make the achievability of these aims impractical. A better world requires a fair transition that sees decarbonization while ensuring that people maintain access to the resources that they need for their daily lives and to support improvement in their economic well-being. Our challenge, the world's challenge, is to ensure that we all benefit from natural resource use in a manner that supports the transition to a low-carbon future. We come to this challenge with a number of important perspectives on ourselves. We are good at stepping up to tackle big challenges, and we are ready and willing to face into this one. We have the people and know-how to make a difference, to improve our own performance and help others improve theirs. We have a portfolio that can help speed the carbon transition while meeting the essential needs of daily life. We have the strategy and systems that will help us identify and secure value-creating opportunities consistent with pursuit of a 1.5-degree world. We are ready to bring these capabilities to bear in helping to lead the solving of this critical global challenge. I'm therefore pleased today to share how we will accelerate our own actions and help others to do the same by adding detail and delivering on the promises we made in July of last year. Today, I am announcing a firm, well-considered commitment to reduce our operational emissions by at least 30% by 2030 compared to 2020. This is a midterm target on the way to meet our goal of being net zero in our operational emissions by 2050. We will adjust our baseline for acquisitions and divestments. There will be no free pass from any material divestments of higher carbon operations. We are also taking action to help enable reduction in scope three emissions. We'll support the steel industry to identify pathways and develop technologies by 2030 to reduce emissions intensity by 30%. And we'll work with the maritime industry to support an intensity reduction of 40% in BHP chartered shipping. We expect our actions to catalyze broader emissions reductions throughout the steel and maritime sectors. We're also making a direct connection between these measures and in our operational emissions by 2050. We will adjust our baseline for acquisitions and divestments. There will be no free pass from any material divestments of higher carbon operations. We are also taking action to help enable reduction in scope three emissions. We'll support the steel industry to identify pathways and develop technologies by 2030 to reduce emissions intensity by 30%. And we'll work with the maritime industry to support an intensity reduction of 40% in BHP chartered shipping. We expect our actions to catalyze broader emissions reductions throughout the steel and maritime sectors. We're also making a direct connection between these measures and executive remuneration. With 10% of the short-term incentive part of my remuneration, and those of our leaders, contingent on meeting targets and goals associated with these commitments every year. And of course, given that we are all also BHP shareholders, we are incentivized to take action knowing the long-term importance for BHP value. Finally, today we are delivering on our promise to provide greater insight into how our portfolio will fare in a transition to a 1.5 degree world and how we will allocate capital in the context of climate through the release of our new climate change report. Johan and Fiona will talk through more detail of these elements shortly. While we're announcing these measures today, we've not been waiting around to get started. Last year, we announced that our Chilean copper mines at Escondida and Spence would move to 100% renewable energy. And this is well on track for the mid-2020s. And just last week, we added to this push for renewables by announcing the awarding of significant new renewable energy contracts 
for our Eastern Australian operations, which will reduce our Scope 2 emissions in our Queensland operations by 50% by 2025. We've also awarded the world's first LNG-fueled bulk carrier tender, which will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by more than 30% per voyage and help catalyze broader reductions in the global shipping industry. These actions are only a start, but they do show our commitment to responsible operations and to supporting decarbonization in our own right, as well as helping our partners to do the same with their emissions. I said earlier today that our approach to decarbonization is wholly consistent with our purpose. Our strategy then creates the framework through which we identify and capture the economic opportunities that come with financial discipline, operational excellence and constant vigilance towards the way in which the world will evolve. And taken together, they enable BHP to help build a better world while generating superior returns, first from today's portfolio and then from the way in which we shape our portfolio over time to create new value as we meet the needs of the world in the decades to come. I'd now like to ask Johan to talk through how we will deliver value specifically in a low carbon transition and how we will be ready for what the world demands of us in any scenario. After Johan, Fiona will take you through the climate commitments I outlined earlier. So with that, Johan, over to you. Mike, thank you. I will run through our scenario analysis process, how we use carbon pricing and our scenarios to shape our strategic decisions, and finally, how those decisions are evaluated under our capital allocation framework. Our strategy to have the best capabilities, best commodities and best assets is integrated with the climate challenge and our ambition to grow value and returns in a decarbonizing world. Every element of our strategic framework, the capabilities we need, the commodities we prefer and the assets we choose, including how we run those assets, is driven by the value we can create by positioning BHP to benefit from a world that is focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Furthermore, they are driven by our accountability to achieve our emissions targets and goals. The timeframes for the decisions we make are measured in decades. So we must make choices in light of long-term trends and uncertainties. We seek to manage our portfolio for value, risk and returns over multiple horizons. To help guide our decision making, we have developed a range of long-term scenarios of views. They cover multiple trends, but the analysis of the climate challenge is the most important. That is because it has the greatest impact on the outlook for our commodities and society's expectations of us to do our part to address global warming. We have developed four climate-related scenarios to help guide us. Firstly, a Paris-aligned one-and-a-half-degree scenario. Secondly, a less ambitious low-carbon view, still predicated on rapid decarbonisation in easier-to-abate sectors. Thirdly, a central energy view based on the most likely policy mix, which is pointing towards decarbonisation in some of the more developed regions. Finally, an extreme climate crisis scenario, which involves an abandonment of existing global decarbonisation initiatives for a time, leading to a catastrophic climate crisis which catalyzes urgent subsequent decarbonizations. The power of these scenarios is in the examination of the outcomes taken together, rather than application of them on a standalone basis. Together, they help us make judgments about the implications of each, their plausibility, and ultimately, what they tell us about the likely direction of travel and over what time horizons. We are encouraged by what our scenario analysis tells us about the opportunities in front of us, but we are also clear-eyed about the challenges. We will continue to evaluate the scenarios, the way they may evolve during the transition and the implications for the management of our portfolio. As Mike said, we believe the world must strive to achieve a well below two degree outcome consistent with the Paris Agreement. And we do see some momentum towards that outcome. But the scale of the challenge to transition to a one and a half degree world is huge. We will need steep annual emissions reductions, sustain them for decades, and with every part of the economy needing to decarbonize. Global energy system emissions will need to decrease by 70%, and the fossil fuel share of primary energy declined to 50% by 2050. An ambitious task. We expect that the calls for action will increase in urgency over the timeframes we forecast, lagged by the actions themselves. 
That is important for our strategic choices. Whether or not we achieve one and a half degrees, it is the steps that we expect the world to take that drives the commodities we choose, the way we will operate our assets, and the capabilities we need to succeed. BHP's portfolio is already well positioned to benefit from a world that seeks to achieve a low carbon future. The greater the global efforts to decarbonize, the stronger the impact on demand for copper, nickel and potash. As well as the increasing need for more steel to build wind farms, pump hydro and other decarbonization enabling infrastructure. High quality, low impurity iron ore and high quality hard coking coal will both be critical to the steel industry as it seeks to improve efficiency and lower the emissions intensity of production while moving toward processes that rely on carbon capture or hydrogen injection. As we transition to great electrification, especially in transportation, nickel and copper are favored, while headwinds will emerge in the demand for oil and then for gas. We expect the world will need petroleum products for the foreseeable future. Our oil and gas assets exhibit low emissions intensity and we expect the supply gap we've spoken about previously to persist. We will continue to invest in a disciplined and balanced way in order to generate attractive returns for our shareholders. As Micah said, to achieve an equitable transition to a greener future and to maintain and continue to improve the living standards of billions of people during that transition, the world needs oil and gas. Our portfolio may be well positioned today, but we are not resting on our laurels. We are rising to the challenge by reshaping our portfolio to outperform in a low carbon world and to maximize value. We're actively pursuing opportunities to grow our copper and nickel business. And we have already announced an intention to reduce our footprint in coal, focusing only on high quality, hard coking coal. And to fulfill our ambitions, we must have the capability to innovate, finding ways to increase the efficiency of our decarbonization efforts and to unlock more resource in our portfolio. Our innovation team is prioritizing each of these areas as a critical enabler of our strategy. A key element of our strategy is to have the best assets. In the context of our climate scenarios, best means producing commodities that help our customers transform them into end products in the most efficient, low emission way possible. Having the best assets also mean addressing our scope one and two emissions. We are well placed in that regard. Most of our assets are already at the lower end of their respective emission intensity curves. And, as Mike said, we are moving them further to the left, significantly so in the case of our Chilean copper assets. Accepting that the world will continue to need our commodities, we are well placed to provide these with amongst the lowest carbon footprints. In addressing our scope one and two emissions, like all of our capital investments, we assess and rank each decarbonization project through the rigor of our capital allocation framework. Achieving our scope one and two reduction commitments ranks alongside maintenance capital in the hierarchy of our decisions. We are disciplined about ranking the projects we evaluate and optimizing those that we execute. In addition to initiatives such as contracting of renewable power, potential capital spend over the next five years is expected to be 100 to $200 million per annum and already included within our existing CapEx guidance. And as you can see in our climate change report, our investment decisions rely on valuations that embed carbon prices. We use between 10 to $40 per ton in the central energy scenario and 25 to $110 per ton in the lower carbon scenario. This reflects our expectations of a regulatory, observable third-party price on carbon. Importantly, we approach decarbonization projects to meet our commitments in a manner similar to asset integrity spend. Not only do we seek to protect value, but we also work very hard to find ways to grow value and reduce risk as we execute these projects. As we evaluate each project, we are focused on optimizing the significant benefits that would accrue from these investments. The great thing is that in addition to the benefits to our sustainability, management of risk, license to operate, and the creation of social value, many of these projects will also bring with them a positive net present value. We will certainly be working very hard to make that the case.
At all times, our ranking process focuses on the most economically efficient and effective decarbonization. Consistent with our approach to all of our investments, we will be rigorous in our focus on value. Finally, let me quickly touch on our climate investment program. In addition to our other efforts to decarbonize our business, this five-year, $400 million program demonstrates our deep commitment to reducing scope one, two, and three emissions using multiple delivery channels, including projects, partnerships, R&D, and venture investments. Using our disciplined approach to capital allocation, we already have a robust pipeline of projects via our annual corporate planning processes. In closing, I want to emphasize that the climate challenge and the implications arising from our climate scenarios are fundamental to our strategic choices and to the execution of our strategy. Now to tell you more about what we are doing on the ground, let me hand over to Fiona Wall. Thanks, Johan. As Mike outlined earlier, given the urgency of the climate challenge, we must take tangible, substantive, measurable actions. So I'd like to share more detail about our targets and goals and how they will drive the decarbonisation of BHP and support decarbonisation in the value chains of which we are a part. We've been setting targets to reduce emissions from our operations for decades, and we have consistently delivered against these targets. Our long-term goal of net zero operational emissions by 2050 is clear. And today, we're announcing our pathway to achieve it. Setting a target of at least a 30% reduction in emissions by 2030 from 2020 levels provides a clear expectation for our assets and a clear demonstration to our stakeholders that behind our target is a considered and committed plan for delivery. In developing the target, we applied the same rate of reduction to BHP's emissions that the world's emissions would need to contract by in order to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. This is known as the absolute contraction method. This is a science-based target that reflects not just our commitment to decarbonizing BHP, but the recognition that we must play our part in accelerating the global pathway to decarbonization. Our execution plan for this target includes two key focus areas. The first is to decarbonize our electricity supplies. This is a relatively low risk step that can be achieved in a capital efficient manner by leveraging commercial solutions, primarily in the form of power purchase agreements or PPAs. The second is to decarbonize our truck fleet. This is a more complex task as displacing diesel requires partnership with others to test and develop new technologies with significant lead times for implementation. We will not set a target without a clear plan for delivery. This plan represents a balance between rapid implementation of renewable energy and prudent advancement of diesel displacement in a manner that preserves optionality and sets us up to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. We believe the plan is aspirational, but achievable, with further optimization to continue over the coming years as new technologies emerge and commercial applications are better understood. So let's now look at a case study on PPAs. Last year, BHP entered into four new renewable power agreements for its Escondida and Spence COP operations in Chile. The contracts will effectively displace over 3 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent per year, compared with the fossil fuel-based contracts they're replacing. And our investment has directly triggered the development of new renewable generation capacity. These assets are now on track to have 100% renewable supply by the mid-2020s at lower cost than the supply it replaces. Learning from our experience in Chile, we've just awarded a new renewables contract here in Australia. As Mike mentioned, these will reduce our scope two emissions in our Queensland operations by 50% by 2025. Greening our electricity supply will also facilitate the second phase of our pathway to net zero, decarbonising our truck fleet. 
The path to electrification of mining equipment will include solutions such as trolley assist, overland conveyors, and battery solutions. Taking a scalable approach provides flexibility for the rapid development of emerging technologies and resolves the complexities of integrating these into existing operations. But just like our PPAs, transitioning our trucks from diesel to renewables can unlock value, given the higher efficiency of electric motors compared with internal combustion engines and the low-cost fuel source that will underpin supply. Partnership with industry and equipment manufacturers will be key to this transition. We are already leading a collaboration between International Council on Mining and Metals members and equipment manufacturers to progress research, development and deployment of electrified mining equipment. We also re recently launched a cross-sectoral consortium on green hydrogen technologies and their application in mining and resources. Partnerships like this are pivotal to accelerate the decarbonisation of BHP and drive decarbonisation in our value chains. We know that we also have a role to play to help support emissions reductions in our value chain. By definition, value chain or scope three emissions occur outside of our operated assets and we have no direct control over their production. We must therefore seek opportunities to partner with others across our value chain to enable reductions. Over the last year, we've investigated additional ways to do this in consultation with suppliers, customers, investors and other stakeholders. Our approach is to focus on where we can make the biggest difference through both scale and influence. And it includes three elements, annual actions, goals for 2030, and a long-term vision of steel sector and maritime sector decarbonisation in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So let's take a look at how we're partnering with others to deliver this. Over the last five years, we've supported the development of carbon capture and storage technology, which can be applied to a range of sectors and is critical to achieving a 1.5 degree outcome. For example, we established the International CCS Knowledge Centre, which has provided key insights into cost savings for the next generation of facilities. CCS can also play a key role in decarbonisation of the steel sector, and we are actively progressing partnerships that will demonstrate how it and other technologies can support this outcome. In line with our goal to support decarbonisation of BHP chartered shipping, we've awarded the world's first LNG-fuelled bulk carrier tender. The tender will apply to the hire of five bulk carriers to carry iron ore between Western Australia and China and will reduce emissions by more than 30% per voyage. By developing and delivering these types of partnerships, we increase the chance that collectively we can achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement to which we all aspire. Now with targets in place, we must close the loop by making sure delivery is incentivised and rewarded across BHP. We've been setting emissions reduction targets and linking performance against them to executive remuneration for many years. Last year, we committed to clarify and strengthen this link. And the board has now determined that performance against climate change measures will represent 10% of the outcome under the Cash and Deferred Plan, or CDP, for all executive leadership team members. The 10% component will include the key measures we have outlined today. Actual reductions in operational emissions. Actions on the pathway to net zero operational emissions. And actions to address value chain emissions. These measures will directly cascade to other senior leaders and the broader workforce. And as Mike said, this is on top of the incentive that our ELT already has associated with the share-based component of their remuneration. To ensure we continue to respond to the expectations of our stakeholders, we must engage widely, 
actively and consistently. We have prioritised transparency and disclosure for many years. For example, our 2015 portfolio analysis set a new standard within the resources sector. We were one of the first companies to report in line with the recommendations of the TCFD. Our industry association reviews have led the sector and we continue to progress recent reforms. And we continue to score well in climate-related investor benchmarks such as CDP and TPI. Today, we take our next step in transparency and disclosure by launching our climate change report. Following the recommendations of the TCFD, the report outlines how climate change is considered in our governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. It is the culmination of extensive consultation, deep reflection, and decades of leadership. We are committed to action, supported by costed and practical plans, the progress of which will be subject to ongoing, transparent disclosure. I'm really proud of the work we have done and will continue to do. And as always, I welcome your input as it helps us to evolve our approach. And now back to Mike to conclude. Thank you, Fiona. We've covered a lot of ground in today's presentation and given the scale and complexity of the climate challenge, that's necessary and appropriate. The world needs economic growth and Paris aligned climate action. I hope you will take away how we plan to contribute to a low carbon world, provide the commodities the world needs and create substantial value in the process. We stand ready to work with our communities, customers and partners to deliver the high growth, low carbon world to which we all aspire. We approach this task guided by the elements of accountability, expectations, and value. We're a company of substance, and we will continue to step up to our accountability to meet growing expectations through actions that are founded on deep insight, well thought through, rigorously planned, and substantive when it comes to contributing to actual reduction of global emissions. We will protect and grow value through being deliberate in tending to our current portfolio while ensuring we shape it for the future. Thank you. Did you make it this far? <laughs> I hope you did, because it's worth it. Because now you are informed, okay? It's not everybody is informed. Get informed. So we have a very exciting schedule coming up. I think we have Eric Buckland coming on, the job recruiter in mining. Super interesting guy. We also may have Deep Green, the underwater mining guys reached out. So lots of exciting stuff in the pipeline. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you're enjoying these final days of summer. And until next week, take care. <laughs>